0: Welcome to Real Faith, the podcast where we explore the intersection between culture, faith and youth work. I'm Stephen and I'll be your host. Each episode we'll look at a different film or series and discuss it in depth, exploring the themes within it and how we can use it with the young people we work with. We'll cover everything from action to horror, comic book movies to comedies, on this episode, I chat with Andy Kind, who is a stand up comedian and who also now works for Youth for Christ as an evangelist. We talk about a variety of things, including some of his favourite films and the reasons why he loves them. We talk about macro and micro stories and also go into storytelling and some tips for youth workers on how to engage more with storytelling. It's a really fascinating. A discussion and we cover a breadth of topics, there are a couple of spoilers for the film Drive and The Shining and The Terminator. So if you haven't seen any of those films and, and don't want some, some key plot points spoiled, then I would encourage you to watch those films and, and then come back to it. But, but I hope you do enjoy this conversation that I had with Andy. I really enjoyed it. And I think there's a lot of great stuff in there for youth workers to grab hold of.
1: If I drive for you, you give me a time and a place. I give you a five minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes and I'm yours, no matter what. I don't sit in while you're running it down. I don't carry a gun. I drive. So you just moved to LA? No, I've been here for a while. What do you do? I drive for movies. Is that dangerous? It's only part time. You put this kid behind a wheel. There's nothing he can't do. Dad, I want you to meet Mr. Bernie Rose. My hands are
0: a little dirty. So am I. So I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Andy Kind. Andy, how are you doing?
1: Hi, I'm very well, thank you. I'm coming live from a... Writing retreat in deepest, darkest Dorset. So, uh, yeah, you're lucky that you've got some reception for me to be able to answer the call.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And and it's really great you can take your time out to to come and have a chat about films and and, and stand up and and, and storytelling. So I really appreciate you taking the, the time to do that. I guess as a little bit of an introduction and and just to help our, our listeners get a little bit of an understanding of of you as a person and and what you do I wonder if you could share a a little bit of a a potted history and, and and what you're currently up to at the moment if that's okay.
1: Yeah sure so I um 40 years old uh which is which is pretty old um and um times catching up with me. So I'm trying to uh, work a, a lot harder because I think you get you get to well certainly I have got to 40 and realized that a lot of the stuff that I thought I was going to have done by now, I haven't. So I'm working quite hard. I'm working quite hard at least on the stuff that I've been doing for quite a while. So I started doing comedy in 2005, um, just open spots, little unpaid spots uh, around different comedy clubs in the UK and uh, Got in just in time, really. If I'd started two years later, I probably wouldn't have made money in the way that I was able to because it, I got in just before it got absolutely gridlocked with new comedians. Mm. Uh, and then, um, yeah, started to do gigs for churches after the first couple of years. But I think it was very important that I started off on the circuit, on the comedy circuit proper, because um, a, a church gig doesn't—it doesn't get you better as a comedian. It doesn't hone you. It doesn't sharpen you. You really need to be at the coalface for that. Um, and although I don't do much stuff on the circuit now, those that first decade at least of, of being on the circuit was was, was really helpful. So um, yes, yeah, so I've been a stand-up comedian for sixteen years now, seventeen years, something like that. And um, had two years off for a pandemic. That was nice, a little sabbatical. <laughs> and uh, I've uh, written some books as well. I'm writing several more as we speak but um, I am a writer and I don't really know how to describe myself really as, and I don't know what my front foot forward is, whether it's stand up or writing or preaching. I don't know what it is. It's whatever I'm doing at the time is the thing I enjoy the most. Um, And so I've been preaching since 2016, uh, smashing the gospel top bins and um, that's been amazing. And I think, for the first year of that, I felt a bit like a fraud um, because I just thought, oh, they have got me in because I'm funny, uh, but I don't really know what I'm doing as a preacher. And it was true. I didn't know what I was doing, but uh, you learn, you, you, again, you adapt and you, you learn the storytelling art and Mm. you learn that that skill. Um, So yes, I am a a promedian, a preacher and a comedian. I'm also a writer. Uh, I've worked as an evangelist, um, Uh, three months ago I was appointed as head of evangelism for youth for Christ um so I've been um I've been doing a series of things over the pandemic and I wouldn't say I wouldn't say giving myself new strings to my bow but but certainly broadening out my skill set a little bit which which is helpful it's all part of it's all part of growing up Hmm. great so
0: what was it that got you into to stand up in the first place and 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 I guess taking that leap into that world
1: it was simply that I always loved laughing and um, people say oh you know stand-ups are depressed aren't they well no not all of them not all of us I I don't know many people who haven't been hit by some form of sort of uh, depression over the last couple of years Mm. stand-up or otherwise but I got into stand up because I love laughter and I love making people laugh. I love what happens in a room when you've got that sort of uh, wonderful fractiousness of, uh, on the border of fear and joy, which mm. is obviously what happens in a, in a laugh. There's that, it's the breaking of tension, a sort of tremulous energy. Um, I've always loved that. And when I came out of university, I just didn't want to get a proper job. I did, I did get one, but I didn't like it, so I quit. And then I got another one. I quit that because um, I'm a quitter. <laughs> people, people say, oh, you know, don't don't quit. Do quit if it's not the right thing. Mm. And do follow the call on your life, which is not the same as, you know, having a dream. But, it, you know, I think I'd come to realize that it probably was a call on my life and it was important to at least give that a go. So, yeah, that's how I got into it. I started doing these open mic nights and I thought I didn't think it would work I didn't think it would it would make me any money but I thought well I get a go because it's the thing I want to do and mm. I will regret not trying it and I would have I would have really regretted it I think I could have I think I could have been quite a good barrister because I, lo- I like to argue but um and it, so I would have been really wealthy but uh I would have really regretted not doing stand-up so mm. <laughs> so there we go
0: yeah, no, great for sharing, and 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 I guess this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm just interested. When you obviously a, a stand up comedian first, and then kind of more recently have gone into preaching, uh, I wonder when it comes to just to get a little bit of insight, if possible, when it comes to planning a uh, a set for for stand up, and then a, p- planning a a preach. Is there a crossover w- when it comes to those things or, or do you see them as quite different?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I love this sort of question. I love, I love talking about the mechanics behind uh, communication. Um, I have to be more prepared for a preach than I do with a stand-up routine. Uh, I always have to know, I always find, if I don't know my first five minutes of a comedy set, I, I struggle a little bit. I struggle to get into a rhythm. I need to know my first five minutes and I need to know where I'm landing as well. I need to know what the final story is. Um, And interestingly, coming back after the pandemic, I I didn't do that. I just went on and riffed a little bit. Um, But I found myself just a little bit insecure on stage because I thought, well, I don't know where I'm starting. I don't know how I'm ending. So it will be funny. It will be good. But it it might be a bit uh, iffy at times. Whereas now that I've started going back to the old routine of planning out the first five minutes, knowing where the first half ends, knowing where the second half ends, I just feel much more relaxed on stage. And of course that helps my brain to think quicker and um, allows those little vignettes to be created during the show, the little spontaneous banters. Um, Whereas with a preach, yes, I mean, there is is room for... I've got to be very careful, though, because the way my mind works is I'm constantly making connections between disparate ideas. So I am mm. always inclined to add another thought, say, oh, whilst we're on the subject, those little soliloquies, like little conspiratorial asides whilst mm. I'm preaching, um, the breaking of the fourth wall, I'm always doing that because that's how my mind works. So I actually, to avoid doing that too much and to avoid overrunning massively, which is my, the number one critique of, of my preaching uh is that i go on for far too long and and i would always say well you know because people say oh you shouldn't preach for 20 minutes i i should preach for 20 minutes if i'm very entertaining <laughs> 20 <laughs> minute 20 minute preachers are for people who don't have any stage presence that's not me friend so <laughs> i should i should preach for as long as i like but actually it's more about it's more about um people having to pick up their kids from the creche and stuff mm-hmm. like that so I have been, uh, I have been selfish on occasions and certainly post pandemic preachers are shorter now anyway, because Mm. people can't cope with longer preachers at the moment. So you are asked to do sort of 15, 20, 25 minutes tops, which I think is too short. I don't think that's enough time for a a preach. Actually, that would just be my view. Um, It's not a Ted talk. It's supposed to be something a bit meatier supposed to be the thing thing to set you up for the week. Um, And, um, people have short attention spans but they they come to church so they sh- <laughs> they should be they should be okay with hearing someone talk mm-hmm. about the lord um but anyway I digress slightly which I'm again making these <laughs> weird good. tangents this is exactly what I do so I, I when i'm at my best as a preacher is actually cuz i'm really really well planned whereas when i'm at my best as a comedian it's because i'm allowing these disparate ideas to to form and and merge these little um Dance troops of uh, <laughs> of mm. comedy, little flash flash mobs of comedy throughout the night. So yeah, that's the. They both need discipline, but actually, preaching needs more discipline because it's much more time sensitive, and the the discipline I picked up from being a comedian has been over sixteen years of of doing it. So, I am just much more practiced. My my muscles are much more defined as a comedian. I think. Mm.
0: And and do you feel you have to tone tone yourself down and, and your comedy down when it comes to to sermons? Or do you I, I know you, you kind of talked about holding back on those disparate thoughts that, that can go mm. off, but when you're preparing, do you feel you have to to hold back something of your your personality within that?
1: Or not my personality, no, but that I mean again, another fantastic question. Not my personality, because even on stage as a comedian, I'm simply an exaggeration of who I am. And I probably am an exaggeration of who I am as a preacher, but just a slightly different face of the carousel, but it's Mm -hmm. all me. Um, I'm probably a bit more, um, I sort of, as a comedian, I sort of play the alpha male a bit more. I'm more alpha on stage than I am in real life.
0: Okay.
1: Um, Whereas as, as a preacher, I'm a bit more sort of archaic, a sort of the the gentleman preacher in the bowler hat. I like the Victorian dress, <laughs> so I tend to I tend to dress quite smartly. I tend to uh, posh up my voice a little bit at times, um, and it's it's playful. I'm playing around, um, but I'm not being frivolous with it.
0: Yeah.
1: Actually, I think one of the for me, you know, Augustine St. Augustine said that. One of the three things that preaching should do was um, delectare, which is to rivet and delight. I don't, I don't know, and I'm not even saying that I am one, but I don't know many preachers who rivet and delight with their preaching. Mm. Um, so I'm trying, I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to prove and and to prove and to instruct probare, um, and I can't remember what the third one is, but yes i mean that i i have been called as me to do what i do so you're trying to connect people with jesus but actually you know i just think it the advice people give the advice that preachers give other preachers it just feels to me a little bit remedial at times it's like when uh, it's like a football manager saying oh just play 442 well that's great in certain circumstances but that doesn't work against a, a Jürgen Klopp's gagan press, Mm. you're going to get absolutely taken apart. There's more than one way to do things. And I think actually you've got to, you've got to play to your own strength. And my strength is not theology. It's not, I'm not a theologian. My strength isn't um, sort of rigorous systematic presentation. My strength is my personality and my, my passion and my ability to, I think again, when I'm doing it well, which I don't always do my ability to stimulate the mind and the heart. Um, so I think I I take it very seriously, but I think I, I stopped worrying about, um, and we don't get me wrong, I hate negative feedback, I hate it. <laughs> I don't take it well. But, <laughs> to be honest, but I've stopped worrying so much about whether people think I'm preaching in the right way,
0: mm. because
1: it's something that I think about a lot and I'm bounce, you know, bouncing it off prayer walls all the time. So
0: mm.
1: um, so yeah there we go another roundabout way of answering a question there Stephen.
0: yeah no 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 that's great because I know for me like, within my role I'll I'll lead maybe one or two services a, a month within within the churches that I work for and and, and definitely the worst response that, that I ever get is when someone goes oh that was nice like when they yeah, yeah. kind of shake your hand at the end and, and I would much rather them say oh I, I really disagreed with you in this or I really didn't like that in, in comparison mm-hmm. to, well,
1: oh, that was nice. Thank you. Yeah. I, I hate it when people say I hate it when people say, oh thanks, that was very entertaining. Cause actually I'm not trying to do that either. No. I'm not the the end goal is not entertainment. The end goal is for people to leave wanting to share the gospel mm. and um and to share God's love with people because I am an evangelist as well and, and you know the primary role of an evangelist is to equip, equip the saints for acts of service so that's what I'm absolutely trying to do but my, my modus operandi and my method is, is, diff, is different maybe than it, it would be expected but I'm, I'm not simply trying to entertain or give people you know it's not someone said oh nice to have a break from normal sermons <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that no, don't tell me that you laughed it. Don't tell me that you laughed. Don't tell me, don't even tell me that you heard a good talk. Of course, mm. it's a good talk. I've done this for 17 years. I've been on stage for 17 years. It would be surprising if it wasn't at least good.
0: Mm.
1: But what, how is it? How has it impacted your life? What are you going to, what have you learned about God? What have you learned about how his love for you? How has? how has it broken chains and broken down barriers? These are the questions I want. I'm interested in. In hearing people answer, not as you say, that was nice or that was uh, good or that even that was food for thought, because actually people don't people don't eat thoughts; they dismiss them. <laughs> mm.
0: No, that's good. Uh, thank you, and and I'm sure we'll we'll come back to stand up and and and, and storytelling. Obviously, the the main thrust of the of the podcast is around mm. around film, but we'll obviously have a a, a wider conversation around around storytelling and, and, and your experience as well. But I thought maybe start with, with a, a general chat about maybe some of your favourite films and mm-hmm. and maybe what it is about those films that, that make them a favourite. So for yourself then, Andy, what if I was to ask you what, what are your favourite films, what what kind of response would you give me?
1: Uh, it's a good question because I think my favourite genre of film changes from time mm-hmm. to time. It's probably... It's probably Westerns at the moment, but I do love a spy film, a really good spy film. I mean, I've seen, I, w- I wouldn't class it as one of my favourite films, but I've seen Tinker Taylor Soldiers by about six times just because I love the atmosphere of it. I just love that sort of dingy grainy cold war sort of sepia tone to it really. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, the sort of uh, the paranoia. And I love, I love, 70s thrillers for the same reason, that sort of slightly para, paranoid um, anxiety that mm-hmm. um, that seeps through, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland, that's one of my favourite films. But then my top, my top, not my top gun, because top gun's not one of it, but my top boys in terms of films are Drive with Ryan Gosling, mm-hmm. uh, The Shining, uh, by Stanley Kubrick with Jack Nicholson and uh, the terminator and uh, those are the ones that I can and last of the mohicans as well last of the mohicans with daniel day Those were the one, those would be the ones that I would I would have enshrined with me if I was you know tutankhamun um and you know I don't I think there is a I think there is a a, a connecting thread for them all but it's not necessarily the genre of film because obviously one's mm. a horror one's sci-fi, uh, one's an art house B-movie.
0: Yeah, no, that'd be, that'd be great to kind of delve into that a little bit. Yeah, Drive's an, an incredible uh, film and, I guess, really put the kind of Ryan Gosling on, on the map in terms of that kind of alternative cool, because mm. I don't think he's ever been cooler in that film, the, the design. No, the one's jacket. Ever,
1: no one's ever been cooler. It's, it's the <laughs> coolest film there is. It's insane.
0: <laughs> and and then that has a has a western feel too of the the the, the driver or the cowboy coming into the to the town, um, and and he, in, and I think even in the, the Terminator there is something there's something of that in there as well, and 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 the Terminator as well I think is a is a kind of slasher film as, as yeah. well plays into that. So, so, so apart from cool Ryan Gosling, what else is it about Drive that, that makes that one of your favourite
1: films? <clears throat> well, it's interesting, because you just pointed out something that I hadn't really noticed, that all three of those films involve, you know, Shining, Terminator and Drive, involve shadowy strangers coming into town um, mm-hmm. with unclear backstories um, and, uh, and doing something. I think about Drive, yeah, I love the coolness of it. I love the coolness. And again, I don't like art house movies. I would, if, if you said to me, oh, let's, do you want to hang out and watch some art house movies? No, thank you. But I don't want to watch something with Paul Giamatti. I'm sure he's a good actor, but it, <laughs> I don't trust it. I don't trust it. So no. Whereas Drive, again, it, I've seen it so many times. I could watch it now. I might even watch it later. I've got the DVD with me, the Blu-ray. <laughs> I'll take it everywhere. Um, I think... I think it's, I think it's beautiful in its, and I'm trying, I know what I want to say, but I'm basically, once I say, once I say what I like about this film, it basically gives away the connecting thread, you know, about (laughs) the the films that I like, but it's essentially about the, the sort of costly um, self-sacrifice involved. Um, Because I think, (laughs) <laughs> there's a book called um, "How Movies Helped to Save My Soul" um, by uh, a, a writer, a film a film writer, but a Christian mm-hmm. guy as well. And um, if I'd done some research, I would have remembered his name. That's it's funny. Gareth something, but uh, <laughs> Gareth Mister some, Gareth something, the G something. And he said in his book, "There's only one. There's only one meta narrative." In the universe only one major storyline wired throughout the universe and that is god's redemption of the creatures he made a little lower than the angels that's the only story going on (laughs) throughout the universe and um and so i think actually i think you can make an argument some people would disagree with me but you know people are wrong i believe that all stories are an attempt usually an inadvertent attempt to lock in to that ultimate story. Every story, if it's a book or a film uh, or a stand-up show, a play, it's all about identity. All writing is about identity. We all want to know who we are, why we're here and where we came from and where we're going after this. These These are the big questions, aren't they? These are the three questions that Wherever you live and whenever you've lived, where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going afterwards? These are the big questions. And I think the 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 thing about drive is that you have this, you have this mysterious nameless character who who loves somebody, loves somebody that he almost has no right to love. And is prepared to lay down his life for that person. Um, and I think the the, the beauty of the drive is in the is in the sadness of it because we don't see that story redeemed.
0: Mm.
1: You know, we see at the end we see him dead essentially, and then there's a blink. Spoilers! <laughs> spoilers ahead. <laughs> we see him sitting. In, under the sun in his car, and he looks like he's dead, and then there's a blink and he and he wakes up but his his side is pierced mm. he is he has been pierced, and the side is wounded uh he is he's bleeding out emotionally and physically, and we see him driving off and we don't know that you know, the screen cuts very abruptly to black, and we don't know what happens we don't see the redemption and we never find out his name uh and we never know what happens but we assume that he's never able to go back to the Cor- carry mulligan character mm. whom he was so ready to die to die for so it's the it's the hero's it's the hero's journey but it's the christ's journey as well isn't it really it's the it is the christ figure and um it's the it's the inversion of that sort of romantic comedy idea or sort of yeah romantic ideal of the hero gets the girl because he doesn't Mm. and uh, and again that's i think what's happening at, at at the cross is that god isn't getting what he wants at the cross jesus isn't getting what he wants he's doing what he's doing the right thing but the right thing leads to to death and ultimately there's a redemption but the stages, there really there is real death before mm. resurrection, and I think Drive brilliantly, perfectly shows the death, but stops short of showing the resurrection. Which you know, as a Christian, I want to say, oh, but there's a you know there's a better story. But that's okay, because Drive is not a Christian film. It's not an attempt. Mm. It's not an attempt to. And this is where people need particularly Christians, we need to watch films better. We need to stop judging things morally and understand what films are trying to do artistically and creatively. We need to judge them on their own merits, not judge them by some rubric or standard of morality that we've inherited mm. from, you know, the baby boomers. It, films, are, films only need to be judged on what they're trying to do and what DRIVE is trying to do brilliantly is it, to tell a love story of, of sacrifice. Um, without pulling any punches, and that's why it's such a brutal film, it's such an ag- aggressive film, but but life is like that, you know, mm. um, Thomas Hobbes said, didn't he, the philosopher, that life is nasty, brutish, and short, um, and to be sort of, to be an there's too much an, anemic uh, sort of um, clinical, overly clinical prissiness about the way Christians talk about films and and art, but art's supposed to talk about life as it is Mm. and and ask questions about how it should be, not to, not to paint this sort of, you know, slightly 1950s American Diner view of, um, of society anyway there we go i've digressed that's why i like drive (laughs) yeah
0: no no that's great and i absolutely agree and 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 part of the reason of this podcast is to to engage deeper with films uh, to to find the divine in there and and to to find the the stories that reflect our own stories and 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 why in the past and episodes that we covered the the new Scream film. We've covered the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre film because yeah. is it, there, there there are things in there that are worth exploring and, and and discussing. And that's always been kind of my motive for for wanting to chat with Christians more about film and 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 go yeah. deeper with it. Not yeah. not having those shallow discussions of well, I don't agree with the morals of it, so I'm not going to engage with it. It's yeah, that's about right. engaging with the good and the bad of it. I'm not saying that all that we should in Love every part of a film, just like I don't think we should love yeah. every part of drive, but yeah there's but there's stuff in there to to wrestle with
1: that's right, absolutely, and we're you know we're allowed to show some nuance aren't we We're allowed to mm-hmm. um you know a film isn't good because you agree with the message <laughs> and it's and it's not bad because you you don't um again like i the films I've chosen are interesting because I don't like horror films um I don't like. I'm not a huge sci-fi fan, and I hate art-house movies. But these three, <laughs> th- these three films stick out because they're actually, in their different ways, what I th- what I think they, what I think they do. I think they are shadows. It says in Hebrews, you know, the shadows of things to come. I think they are mm. really good sketches of what the gospel of what the gospel actually is. Even if they're the inversion of that, you know, it, it's as as Christians, if there is only one big story. All these other stories are somehow linked and as an evangelist, but really for us as Christians, you know, we have this raw material that we've been given that people are invested in and and, and engaging with, with the themes of hope and redemption and life and and death. And all we need to do is to say, hey, you see that story, You, you see the things that you know are true about that story that, you know, death, death shouldn't win. And that love should win and that freedom is better than being trapped and that uh, amazing things happen when hope is hope is around well guess what there's a there's a story that is true and that agrees with all of these things there's a big meta narrative wired into the universe um and the gospel isn't based on these hollywood films the hollywood films are based on him it's the same with the superhero films people mm-hmm. say oh jesus is just uh Jesus is just a sort of, you know, fictional Superman. No, no, no. Superman's a fictional Jesus. Mm. <laughs> Again, he's a Christ. He's a Christ figure. But they're all based on him. The original story. In the beginning was the word, mm. as it says at the book, chapter, at the start of uh, the book of John. In the beginning was the word, Logos, the seeded word, in, r- wired into the universe from the beginning was so- seeded word. story, God's story. And um, so we shouldn't be surprised if um, themes like hope and joy and, and fear and love and redemption and loss and separation are found in, in every single other story, even if they're corrupted or, or mistold.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, we can, from an early age, kids are, t- alert, are taught to, you know, you have that, have that sort of those blocks of different shapes and you fit them into the holes and initially it's a toddler you just bang them and you just never get any in but over time you learn where the the holes go and you learn how to turn them we should be able to do that with story we should be able to see a film like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or you know the Royal Tenenbounds or whatever it is and frame it in a way that the themes that people are responding to are connected to the themes of, of, of the gospel because again we are made in the image of God. So we shouldn't be surprised that that we have a sort of innate knowledge of the stuff that he's put in us, whether we agree with him or believe in him or not.
0: In the 21st century, a
1: weapon will be invented like no other. This weapon will be powerful, versatile, and indestructible. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be bargained with, it will feel no pity, no remorse, no pain, no fear. It will have only one purpose, to return to the present and prevent the future. This weapon will be called the Terminator.
0: And so I guess that very similar to the Terminator you have obviously, Kyle Reese, who, who in some way lay, lays down his life against the, the great evil of the, the Terminator. So is that for you then one of the films you love because it has that through line in there as well?
1: Yes. Um, and I preach on the Terminator. I've never preached on Drive or The Shining, but I've preached on the Terminator because if, if there is no God, if atheism is true, then the Terminator is simply... <laughs> a fictional retelling of a true story which is that death is not that death is coming for you uh, and it does not feel pity or remorse or fear it cannot be reasoned with it cannot be bargained with and it absolutely will not stop until you are dead that is true on a, on an atheistic universe that is true the terminator is true so how would it be for you if when you see the terminator bearing down on you ac- across a, a crowded life and you see you know the people parting for death to come towards you how would it be for you if someone grabbed you by the arm pulled you aside and said come with me if you want to live that's the gospel Mm -hmm. that's literally the gospel (laughs) so for me it's um yeah it's 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 using things like that people aren't reading bible stories people don't read the bible christians don't read the bible either but people watch films so Again, if there is one meta narrative, if there is one story, um, and when I'm preaching, I, I often talk about big story, little story, because the the postmodern mind doesn't want to be told what to think, um, but you can help them how to think, and particularly for millennials down, Generation Z and Alpha, you know, they 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 know. Lots of stuff about themselves. They're very self-aware, and so uh, telling them what telling them what is true when they don't agree isn't going to get you anywhere. Whereas telling them what they already know to be true and then showing how that draws a line to the big story. So when I when I talk when I preach on this, I say, look, there's certain things that you have as your little story. You want to be loved unconditionally. You want to be free, you want your life to have purpose, to be about something. You know that death feels unnatural. You know that some things are really wrong. Um, you know, hashtag love wins, that, you know, that means something. You want justice. You you and I might disagree on what justice looks like, but you want justice. You know what hope and joy feel like. You don't just understand the words. You, you, you apprehend the feeling of hope. And again, I might, you and I might hope for different things and find joy in different things, but hope and joy feel the same for me um, as as they do for you. What uh, René Descartes would call qualia, uh, qualia, these little qualia, sort of the innate experience of of things like hope and joy. Um, So that's our little story. Then the question is, is there a big story that makes sense of that? Is there a grand narrative? That, that makes sense of those things. And yeah, there's one, there's one story where, you know, we're loved unconditionally and justice really will be done. Every tear will be wiped dry. There really is such a thing as freedom and peace and hope will be fulfilled. Joy will be satisfied. Um, so that's how I preach. And I think, you know, the, that's, what, that's the approach I'm taking when I'm talking about films and watching films, that's what I'm looking for in films. I'm looking for the raw material with which you can fashion, essentially, gospel vignettes. And you, as you've noticed yourself, you can find them anywhere because it's mm. it's it's in all story.
0: Yeah. No. I, I'd never, I'd, I'd never thought of the Terminator in that way of this. Kind of yeah, atheist worldview of of death, ultimately coming for you, and yeah, no, I, I think that's a really fascinating uh, way of looking at, it and that then that come come with me if mm. you want to live. Uh, no, that's a, a yeah, a, a really fascinating jumping yeah. off point for for discussion. I guess then moving on onto the shining, I'm 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 keen to hear if. The, the sacrifice mm. narrative that you find potentially in there, um, and 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 how you how you use that. particularly yeah, so that's be, more. Yeah, that
1: that's me. more of an outlier. So I don't. I suppose it's not the sacrifice narrative, but I suppose um, with the Shining, and again, Kubrick wasn't bothered how people analysed his films. He 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 wasn't keen to mm. you know write an author's note on stuff. Um, so The Shining, as all the Netflix documentaries prove, has as many, as as many different theories as, as, as there are people to Mm. have theories. My theory, which I don't think for a moment is definitive, but the way I see the film is that actually the, the hotel is hell. The hotel itself is hell. And, um. And represents the demonic, and what the demonic does is it spreads fear and uncertainty. It causes division. So you, you see this little trinity of a family: father, son, uh, mm-hmm. and and wife. And you see them being divided, but the hotel, the hotel picks picks them apart, and goes for the weak spots, and um, and tells lies and and asks questions um you know when jack says when he's in the bar i'd sell my soul for a drink it's at that point that Mm -hmm. the the really creepy butler, grady appears to him um and again in the in the genesis account in the garden of eden the first question that satan asks of humanity is did god really say that one question to sow doubt and that's what's happening in the shiny just sowing sowing doubt going for the weak spots, um, going after addiction, uh, tear, tearing down and tearing apart family structures, and ultimately absorbing absorbing people, particularly Jack, into hell by a series of choices. So, you know, mm. if, if you have a sort of functional view on on hell of, God will punish people for not believing. It maybe doesn't work as well, but I think the the view where C.S. Lewis is quoted, "The gates of hell are hella closed from the inside," and actually we we become our choices. You see that happen with Jackie becomes his choices. The more he chooses to engage with the evil in the hotel, the more the more it it fills him to the point where at the end mm. it turns out that he's always been there. Uh, he, he it's just a, he is just. A, a, a part of the hotel it's just part of the fabric um,
0: mm.
1: so there's there's just something really fascinating about that but then, I, but then I like the fact that there's that I suppose it's more philosophical than theological but you've got the sort of free will versus determinism debate of with Danny the young boy will he just is, is he deterministically programmed to just become his father Um or can he make a free choice? Can he get out? And he does get out. They get out. He and the mom get out. And and mm. obviously in Doctor Sleep, which is a, a very good film, actually uh, mm. relieved. I was so relieved by how good it was. But uh, again, then in Doctor Sleep, you've got the you've got the sacrifice narrative. You've got the, the Christ thing because he does lay down his life then. Um, but yes, I think The Shining for me. I mean, I just think it's it's just a brilliant film. It's so creepy. And again, it's got that. I mean, it's 1980, I think, wasn't it? So, but it's, it's got that 70s feel of just
0: mm.
1: creepiness and sort of like the on un, the uncanny spookiness of it, which I just love. So, yes, it's not quite the uh, self sacrifice narrative, but it. But again, it, I think there's a strong. You can certainly talk use it to talk about what the demonic does or what hell is you know hell is what hell is what Mm. happens when when god is not there (laughs) and um hell is the absence of god and you see in this hotel the absence of goodness and you see what happens to people they they get sucked into it which is not Mm. to make a condemnation of the people in those situations but but simply an an observation that's what art does art observes it doesn't art doesn't have to make a point. It can just ask a question. Um, and I think what what is really interesting about The Shining is it asks the question, one of the questions it asks is, what happens when love doesn't win? I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I hired a man named Charles Grady is the winter caretaker. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Oman, that's not going to happen with me.
0: (laughs) That's right. I guess to talk wider then about about stories in general and, and and storytelling how how do you use stories even when it's in your your stand-up and even in, in, in your preaching that might be helpful for for youth mm. workers when it when it comes to putting something together
1: I think with preaching I mean I am a storyteller as a comedian so the reason I, I do stories is because I just think my Narrative-driven comedian than I am a joke writer. I'm not a great joke writer. I've got some jokes. And I've got some very good jokes. But I've got some. After 16 years, I've got some very good jokes. Whereas someone like Gary Delaney has got thousands of really good jokes. Mm.
0: Um,
1: but so I think where I do well, where I play to my strengths, is in is in stories like narratives with big punchlines at the end, where I can where I can build a scene, you know, I can I can add some mise-en-scene, like a a good director and and tie stuff together. So then in preaching, it's interesting because obviously Jesus used stories. Mm -hmm. People remember stories better than they remember facts. That is just a fact. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) because people don't just need People don't just remember knowledge; they remember emotion, and they retain things in their emotions and not just in their minds. Mm. Um, but I also think that in our age, where people do have such a short attention span, people don't tune out when you're telling a story. People don't zone out when you're telling a story, particularly a funny story, because they want to know when the punchline's coming. Mm. They they're not they can't predict it in the same way. Whereas um, if you if you're giving a 3.7, I want to say three things about what the gospel is. It's, you know, it's good, it's holy, it's righteous, whatever, whatever you want to say, Mm. you know that by the end you'll be reminded of what he's just said. So you don't you don't necessarily need to listen or what she's just said. You don't need to listen in the same way. And they are unpredictable, they are varied, they're not theory um and in the same way that preaching and teaching aren't the same thing but information to the to the emotions as well as to the the brain and you know drama human drama human drama is what everyone is obsessed with everything that we watch mm. on our screens is human drama it's it's the internal conflict and and a good story has that human drama it has internal conflict there's no without conflict and resolution. There is no story. There, there's no story that exists. You don't tell you don't tell a funny mm. story from holiday even without a problem and a resolution to the problem. You know we had a yeah. we had a blocked toilet and then all these weird things happened and finally they got it they got it unblocked with hilarious consequences. But it's not a story without the initial conflict and then the resolution. Whereas a lot mm. of sermons don't set up a conflict and they don't give a resolution they just impart information they just you know syringe you as an intellectual placebo so i think that i i remember ideas i learned by hearing stories and hearing people's emotional intelligence it's not a hard and fast rule but it is useful and i think functionally and practically, in terms of life hacking your preaches, people aren't going to zone out when you're telling the story. They're just not going to. Hmm. Whereas your itemising points of theology, they are going to zone out. doesn't matter how, how good you are. So always tell a story, always cry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so I guess then for a youth worker that maybe it's thinking, well, yeah, I'd like to start maybe engaging more with with stories and, and storytelling. Would you have any any tips from, from, from your kind of vast experience and and years of 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 doing that? Are there some good ways to to start that process?
1: When I when I teach stand-up, when I do little stand-up workshops over a couple of days, I always tell them they don't need to make stuff up. They can just enhance what they've already got everybody has got a funny story everybody has got an embarrassing story everyone has you might need to delve into your memory banks a while but everyone's got a funny story or an embarrassing story so use it think about a story that comes to mind that you could tell and then think okay well what's the message there how can i link that to the gospel what aspect of the gospel can i can i bring to bring to bear so if it's about you know fear let me tell you about when I was the most afraid when I fell into the line enclosure. Let let me then tell you about how we don't need to be scared because of God telling us, do not be afraid. Or, um, Mm. if it's a story, if it's an embarrassing story, you can talk about how we're called to be fools for Christ and not give up and whatever. Uh, so that's one, that's one tip. Uh, and I think I don't want to hear a story third hand, you know, in sort of in the 1800s, when novels were still quite new and a lot of a lot of novels were stories within stories within stories. It was a, a weird sort of uh, Inception style storytelling where you had a narrator mm. telling about a man he'd met who then told him a story that happened to his friend. And it was really weird Um and it doesn't work as well, actually. People want to hear for people like the immediacy of a story. When I'm telling a story on stage, the stories I tell on stage as a comedian, that happened to me 10 years ago. And I tell them as though they're recent. Not because I'm lying, it is a lie, but because actually what's important is the is that people feel it now. Um, I don't care. I don't want to hear a story about people landing on the moon because that's happened. It doesn't matter how exciting the story was then. It's not real to me. It doesn't say anything to me about my life now. So it has to be immediate. And you know, setting aside the ethics of whether you should tell somebody else's story, tell a story that happened to you. And if it didn't happen to you, tell it as though it happened to you, because that will just be much more dramatic. And then someone we'll say, oh, well, are you using, that's using deception. Well, no, it's not. It depends what you're trying to. If you're if you're telling a story which is just completely made up, if you're telling a story about how you saw ten people healed, and, and you didn't see anyone heal, well, that's a lie. That's deception because you're trying to you're mm. trying to create, you're trying to get someone to respond based on a genuine deceptive falsehood. But all communication is persuasion. All persuasion involves some sort of manipulation, which is why. Cancel culture is going to explode or implode eventually because actually, you, at some point, you have to say, "Well, no one's allowed to manipulate anything." But all storytelling, all preaching, all public speaking is manipulation. All advertising is manipulation. It may be true, but it's it's using people's weaknesses against them. So uh, I, I think that for people to so say we need to be completely straight down the line hundred percent earnest no you don't need to be actually you don't need you don't lie and you don't use deception you don't try and hoodwink people into getting something from them that they wouldn't have otherwise given you but if you're if you're trying to tell a story for the purposes of making a point and the point you're making is true then the way you highlight that point I think is a a bit more up for grabs and I know I can think of one friendly particularly who who would tell me that that's not the right approach but I'm all right with that you know I people from an artistic background I come from the arts people who come from engineering would would have a different view and that's okay but um hmm. you know there's uh, my father's house has many rooms
0: no I think that's, that's some really great practical advice there Andy for, for people wanting maybe to, to think about telling stories and that kind of thing I, I guess there was just one other thing I want to ask before we begin just to wrap things up and that's maybe around failure and I was thinking, particularly as a as a stand up, as you hone your material, and and for youth workers, they'll have those moments in front of young people where where things just don't go to plan, and 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 things haven't worked. And I, I would be interested to hear from from your experience of of stand up and, and 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 how you see failure, and 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 how you
1: deal with that. No gig gets. 10 out of 10 laps all the way through. So you failed a little bit. And you're always going to feel failure because you are proud. You're a person. You're a human being. Therefore, you are, you know, one of your primary operators and driving forces is pride. That's the nature of the fall. So you're always going to feel hurt when you fail. You're always going to feel hurt. That's not that's not some sort of personal sin or something you should be ashamed of. But you you need to not let it be the driving force. You know, emotions are fantastic servants but terrible masters and when I'm when I'm talking about sharing the gospel with people when I'm trying to create people to do that that I don't teach them techniques I teach them just how to deal with their fear and the way to deal with your fear is not to try and get rid of it but to move through it to sort of show it the front door and then open the back door and let it out because you're always going to feel fear being afraid isn't sin staying afraid is the problem refusing to refusing to let the other powers at work in your life override the fear, that's the problem. So fear of failure is natural. Refusing to act because of that fear of failure is a problem and I've done that a lot. I have done that a lot and I've missed opportunities because I was afraid to fail because I hate to look stupid. And it's interesting, one of my biggest fears has always been looking stupid and getting into trouble. Um, And the thing that is one of the public, the public's biggest fears which is you know public speaking stand up comedy um, so that's an interesting sort of case study but i think understanding that you are going to fail but there's no that failure isn't fatal and it's not final Every, everything good is a the result of the perfection of imperfections it's a ser- you know a series of failures Leading to something approaching success, WD forty
0: mm.
1: was the fortieth attempt to get that product right. That's why it's called WD forty. There were thirty nine failures. Um, mm. I read my my most popular book, Stand Up and Deliver, which is eleven years old now. Sold really well. I still get people commenting on it. I read it about recently. I hated it. I thought it was I thought it was <laughs> badly written, and it was me who wrote it. And at the time, I thought it was brilliant. And again, people see do think it was brilliant. But I hate it. I want to do one of those, uh, you know, reduxes, like the, di- the director's cut um, and, and still might do at some point because it, it, bits of it, I'm embarrassed by it. But actually, it was the best I could do at the time. And that's all you can do. You can only do as well as you can at the time. Hmm. You give it all and you let, you let God do the rest. And, uh, you know, when, when Jesus found Peter on the beach, he said, I'll, I'll make you a fisher of men. He used Peter's gifts and slightly redirected them. He didn't say, you're going to have to retrain as a baker because my plan is to make you a baker. And that wouldn't make any sense, Jesus, would it? So I, I would say you are going to fail. But fortunately, the story that you're connected to, and again, it goes back to the story that you are hardwired into. The story that you have been hardwired into is one where condemnation means nothing. There is no such thing as condemnation in Christ Jesus. And. Um, your identity is safe. Your identity is hidden with Christ in God. No matter how badly you do at sharing the gospel or teaching young people, the Lord will say to you, "Well done, good and faithful servant." That—that's the deal. So we need to—we need to retrain our minds because addiction happens when our minds get rewired negatively. But being more than a conqueror is what happens when we rewire our minds the other way so that actually we just don't worry about failure too much. We know it's going to happen, but we don't worry about it. And when we do fail, we go on to the next one, like a good, like a good striker. Or a good football team, even the best teams lose, but they just get back on and they, 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 they're securing our identity and they get back on with scoring the next one or winning the next match. So yes, I think whatever it is, whether it's sharing uh, the gospel or leading a a youth group or one-to-one evangelism, whatever it is, failure's not that big a deal what's a big deal is a lack of humility and self- entitlement because getting overly worked up about failure really makes it about you um, really makes it about your pride but your pride isn't the solution it's the pro <laughs> it's the problem and um, there's a there's an old, a quote from one of the old church fathers that says um you you fast, but Satan never eats. You work hard, but Satan never sleeps. The one the one area you can beat him, it's am paraphrase now, the one area you can beat him is in humility because Satan has no humility, doesn't understand it. So humility is about being able to say, okay, I'm not, I didn't do that as well as I might have done or as, as other people would have done, but I can take some, I can cope with that and I can look on the good things I did, build on the bad things I did so that in a year's time, when I look back, I'll be further forward than I am now. So I'll be at least making progress. Because the problem with pride is that it actually stops progress. And again, the reason I'm not better as a stand-up comedian is because of I had this sense of entitlement for so long. It's like, well, people should give me more credit. Well, people do give you credit, but they give you more credit if you actually got up and spent six hours a day writing stand-up rather than just traipsing around the house thinking, imagining all the awards you're gonna win. It's absolutely nonsensical. So, yeah, fear is just a huge distraction. And and I go back to what I say about being 40, I've been, I've been distracted by so many things, mainly fear, hope as well, I get distracted by hope, but mainly by fear. And where I'm at now, which is why I think I'm being quite productive at the moment, is that win or lose, I just get up the next day and I carry on doing what I was doing the day before and I try and do it slightly better just much more sort of matter of fact about stuff, Um, much more functional and, uh, you know, as a, as a result. So Milton Jones said that um, when he started out, there were people much funnier than him who gave up. And the reason he's where he is is because he just didn't give up. And Galatians 6, 9 says, um, you will reap a harvest at the proper time. If you do not, if you do not give up, you'll reap a harvest at the proper time. If you do not give up. So just don't give up don't give, don't let, mm-hmm. let fear win uh, and you know change your mind. change your mind, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. change your mind about how secure you are in Christ and, and how how successful the, the scoreboard is rigged in your favor. You've already won. So just you know get on get on with it. Hmm.
0: Yeah no I think that's really helpful. Andy and I think a really good point just to to kind of to kind of wrap things up on. So, if if, if people wanted to to contact you or, or engage with you further about about what you do, how, what would be the best way for them to do that?
1: Uh, the best thing to do would be to contact me. I'm on all the social medias, but um, Andy at Andykind.co.uk is my email, and anyone can email me. But um, yeah, I'm very easily found online. I'd be quite easy to assassinate because uh, my whereabouts are always quite well known. Uh but yeah andy at andykind.co.uk.
0: That's great. Well well thank you again for for your time and 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 for sharing and and the
1: insights that you've brought for us. It's been a real joy actually. I've I've had a a, a very a very very nice time. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much.
0: So a huge thanks again to Andy Kind for joining me to discuss a variety of different subjects and topics. I'd love to know what you thought of the episode and if you'd like to see more episodes like this that are more general in their content and, and discussing different films and areas of specialism with youth workers. So you can let me know what you thought by Getting in touch on Twitter or on Facebook if you search for at Real Faith Pod on either of those platforms, please do get in touch. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I would love it if you would either follow or subscribe to the podcast and leave us an ideally positive review as that helps other youth workers see what we're up to. But thank you again for downloading and, and listening to this episode on whichever platform you found it and look out for another episode coming soon.